Well, Jesus, you're, uh, <clears throat> you're with us right now at the most important point of the service. The most important thing today isn't, it isn't the songs that we sing, although those are great. It isn't the sermon that's preached. It's not the coffee and the donuts. It's not even fellowshipping with each other. The most important moment of this day is the moment we come face to face with you. And that happens at this table. You're our God, you're our Savior, you're our Master, and you're our friend. And we come to you as we are. Boy, for some of us, this is such a great day. There's been reason for joy and celebration, and some come before you today with thanksgiving in their hearts. And for others, well, it's been one of the worst weeks they've ever had. They come to you today like that man who once said, I believe, but forgive my unbelief. And yet you receive us all. <laughs> Wherever we are, you receive us today. So thank you for being faithful. Thank you for meeting us in this place. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever had a mountaintop experience? Ever, ever had a chance to be up literally on top of it? I told you my terrible mountaintop experience at Pikes Peak. Uh, a blizzard, uh, sub-zero temperatures, and I couldn't see anything. It was a disaster, and I couldn't breathe and got sick. But I've had other mountaintop experiences that were far, far greater. I had a chance when I was young. Some of you remember old Bernie Blankenship used to be the youth minister over at uh, First Christian Church, and Bernie took a group of us down to the Smoky Mountains, and and uh, had a chance to camp out on a mountaintop. And what was so awesome is when we woke up in the morning, the clouds were beneath us. Mark talked about that on his Kilimanjaro trip. And that's a pretty amazing thing just to look out. And it's like you're seeing a sea of white, an ocean of white, uh, with just little islands of mountain peaks poking up through it. Incredible. There's something awesome about, about the mountaintop. Some of you have had spiritual mountaintop experiences, a, a moment where you had great clarity, you had, you had a real sense that you were close to God and you were connected to God, and, and maybe it was a retreat or a week at church camp or a conference or, or a revival, or, or maybe it was just some personal journey and you, you kind of really felt like you were really close uh, to God. Probably all of us have had some moment like that at some point. Those things are special. There's something about those moments. We can, we can see maybe things we haven't seen before. We experience things we haven't experienced before. It's, 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 a, it's a neat, encouraging kind of moment. But it's hard to live on the mountaintop. <laughs> Life, it seems, happens in the valleys. Well, this is a mountaintop experience. You're familiar with it. It's the story of Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry. It's a story you're you're well acquainted with if you've been a Christian for very long, and you know the story. It's a mountaintop experience, a day where everything seems to go right. But it didn't start that way. And like a lot of mountaintop experiences, it won't last. But for a few minutes today, let's enjoy the mountaintop. And let's go there together. If you have your Bibles, you might follow along today. Go with me to the, the uh, Gospel of Luke the 19th chapter. 
Jesus went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Need to pause just for a second because you need to understand a little background here. Jesus' ministry has been going full steam for almost three years. A lot of great things have happened. And in the last year or so of his life, Jesus has been telling his disciples, you know what? I'm going to die. He's told them not once, not twice, but three different times now. In fact, when he gets ready to go to Jerusalem, before this trip begins, Thomas is with the other disciples, and Thomas tells the other disciples, let's go with him, that we can die with him. That's what he says. So the expectations for this trip are heavy. And um, the disciples, at least in the beginning, they weren't expecting a mountaintop experience. (laughs) I think as they set out on the journey, it's with a resolute kind of determination that says, hey, things might be tough on this trip, which is what made the moment so spectacular to them. It was unexpected, a positive thing they didn't see coming. Jesus is going into Jerusalem, and as he approached Bethphage, at Bethany, at the hill or the mountain called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell them, the Lord needs it. Now, I love this part of the story because there's a lot of things here that we just don't get to know. Is this prearranged? Had Jesus prearranged this with the owner of the horse and said, hey, I'm going to need to borrow your your donkey, I'm going to borrow this colt? Uh, Has he prearranged that, the story? Or is this Jesus just exerting the fact that everything on the earth is his? And that's true. The earth is the Lord's. Nothing, Nothing that's here is is ours, it's his, and so was he just exerting his authority? We don't get to know that. We don't get to know that. But we do get to see that, that Jesus' words are always going to come back true. <laughs> and everything he says will happen just the way he says it will. And that's what happens here. It says that, it says that as they were, uh, those who were sent ahead uh, went and found that it was just as Jesus had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked him, why are you untying the colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. (laughs) I don't know if you've ever thought about this, right? It doesn't seem seem like a big, big deal. Uh, The idea was that I think they understood it was going to get borrowed from the beginning. And after all, riding on the colt's not a big thing necessarily. It's not like they're going to take it forever. It's not a big thing, and sometimes that's the problem for us. Sometimes we think that the little things we do for God don't matter much. They're just not that big of a deal. And nothing can be further from the truth. Everything in this story is actually pretty simple, if you think about it. What's about to be offered in the story? A colt. You're going to borrow a colt. A few branches that you rip off of the trees. A coat, maybe, that you're wearing. A few words that come from your mouth, they're little things. Sometimes we think little things don't matter much. Now clearly in this story, it'll make a big impact on Jesus, a big impact on the crowd. A lot of things that are happening, we know they're gestures, they're little gestures that are meant to represent bigger things. 
But I, I'm captivated by this idea of little is much in God's hands. Sometimes we think what we have to offer God is something too small to really matter. It's inconsequential. I'm too old. I'm too young. I'm too poor. <laughs> I'm, I'm too busy. Whatever you would fill the blank with. Well, it might not seem much like much to you, but it's a lot in the hands of God. Jesus said things like this, a little faith will move a mountain, just a little faith. He had demonstrated that just a few fish could feed a multitude. In the Old Testament, we'd heard those stories of a little jar of oil that, that filled countless containers, a tiny stone that falls a giant, a few soldiers holding horns and clay pots that defeat a multitude. A superpower. You see, when God comes into our story, a little really is a lot. A little makes a big difference. For some of you today, what I need to do is just have a little movement in your faith. Just move a little closer to Jesus and see what happens. Because that's what happened on the mountain that day. The people moved a little closer. They were willing to do just a little bit more than they'd done before. And throwing your coat down, well, people saw what you were doing. It was kind of your way of saying, I do believe in him. It wasn't an outright confession, but it was a sign. It was a symbol. And waving a palm branch like you would if a king was coming said something about what you were hoping for Jesus to be. And as for those disciples, they'd been faithful. They'd done the things Jesus asked them to do, and and, and they were standing there, and, well, I think something was resurrecting in them. <laughs> it was a resurrection of a kind of hope they'd had from the beginning. If you go back to the calling of Peter, that great story of the fish, where they didn't catch fish all night, and then Jesus says, let's go back out, and they catch the great catch of fish, and, and then Peter decides to follow Jesus. Why did he do that? <laughs> Well, Jesus had resurrected a kind of hope in him that he hadn't had before. And he thought, man, there's, there's something about this Jesus. Maybe he's the one they've said's coming. Made him hope. It made him dream. If, if Jesus could get fish like this, he's a much better fisherman than I am. And if he says, come fish with me, I'm going to go do it. And if he wants to fish for men, so be it. <laughs> Let's fish for men. He had resurrected a dream, a hope in Peter, a calling, a purpose, something bigger, something better. That happens to a lot of us on the mountaintop. Up there in the rarefied air and the clear vistas where we can see a long way, we start to think about life a little different. We dream, we wonder, could life be different? Man, Peter had dared to dream and and along the journey that he had had, there had already been many risks that he had to take. Jesus, uh, immediately, the first thing after he calls Peter, the first thing that he does is go touch a leper. That's pretty risky business. And, and that's followed up with all kinds of risky things. And now here we are once again taking some big risks. I mean, going to Jerusalem where we know people want to kill Jesus, where Jesus says he's going to get killed, and yet here we are taking a big risk once again with Jesus. Yep. The people in that crowd were taking little risks. 
they were assigning themselves and letting people know they had a, an affinity, at least, appreciation for Jesus, and that might have some backlash for them. Peter and the others, they were taking a bigger risk. They were always, always around Jesus. That would haunt Peter in just a few days because people will remember, Peter, weren't you around him a lot? Weren't you one of his followers? They'd taken some risks. They dreamed some big dreams. And yet they were living pretty boldly for Jesus. Walking up to a total stranger saying, hey, Jesus needs this, I'm going to take it. It's a pretty bold step. How bold are you when Jesus asks you to do something that feels uncomfortable? I don't know, but this story, it's all about resurrected hope and dreams and people wondering if Jesus is who he says he is and well, they brought the colt to Jesus, and then the disciples first threw their, they threw their cloaks on the colt, and they put it, Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. I wonder who threw their cloaks down. I wonder who it was that was doing it. Who was there? I have some ideas. Uh, maybe uh, a tax collector was there. We've talked about that recently, haven't we? Uh, maybe he was one of the first to throw a robe down uh, in front of Jesus. I wonder, maybe, maybe who, who knows? We were in Bethany. Maybe Lazarus, freshly raised from the dead, is there. And, and I don't know. I, can't, I can only speculate. Uh, maybe there's a conversation going on between Lazarus and the widow of Nain's son. <laughs> it's a unique conversation. People who are dead, who are brought back to life. And maybe they're there throwing their coats. I don't know who was there. I can only wonder. Uh, maybe there were some servants there from the day that Jesus had turned the water into wine. And they're like, man, I knew this was the guy a long time ago. I've been following his career. Uh, I don't know. I wonder, I wonder if, if maybe the blind man is there saying, man, you should have seen the things Jesus did for me. Or what about the paralyzed man Jesus brought back? Is he the one out there leading the cheer? Woo, Jesus is in town jumping all around. I don't know who all is there. Jesus knew every one of them in the way only God can know us. And they were there. They were there. There are times I wish I could have been there. How about you? They were there, throwing down their cloaks before Jesus. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of his disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. <laughs> Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But there were some of the Pharisees. Boy, they've been figuring into all these stories about hope, haven't they? <laughs> Always there as a foil or as an adversary. Yes, they were in the crowd too. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus, with a little bit of forward sight, says to them, I tell you, if they keep quiet, stones will cry out. 
Creation knew what was happening. (laughs) Jesus says the world, the earth itself knows what's happening even though you're missing it. There are a couple of things in this statement about the rock. One, I hate to think that Jesus would say you're as dumb as a rock. And, And in some ways they weren't even as smart as a rock because the rock would have praised Jesus. But he also is giving us a kind of an Old Testament word here about stones. It's interesting. Throughout the Old Testament, stones have great importance. They're used to mark uh, boundaries. They're used to mark when God's done something incredible. Like when they crossed the Red Sea, they set up a pile of stones. It was important. Remember that old song, Build Me an Ebenezer, and Ebenezer is a pile of stones. It's a concept that, that was used across the Old Testament, and, and it's going to be used in the New Testament in a powerful way because the rocks do cry out. And friends, I want you to know something. The rock that was rolled away that we'll celebrate next Sunday still testifies to the fact that the rocks do cry out and that they do move because of a Savior. But the disciples, they were excited. The Pharisees They were concerned. And Jesus, he received the worship finally upon the earth he was due. It was just a moment. It was brief. But for one brief moment, they got it right. Sometimes that feels like our lives. For one brief moment, we get it right, but it sure is hard to keep getting it right over and over and over. In fact, I I think maybe this story, their story, it's a story about people that were on the mountaintop that could see a long way, they had perspective, they worshiped Jesus, but as we know, and we can't read this story in the absence of the events that follow it, because we know them. We know what this week will bring. We know it's going to take the cross and the cheers to crucify him. And, and, and we know it's going to take the trial and the denial. We know what's coming. So we, we read this story and, and we recognize that they lost their perspective when they got in the valley. <laughs> their hearts turned. They followed the crowd. But during the triumphal entry, they could plainly see. But they lost their way by Friday. That's their story. It's also Peter's story. Peter probably leading the way that day for the parade, maybe one of the first to put his coat down. He certainly believed. He was willing to die with Jesus. Don't miss that. He'd have a sword. He'd be ready to to fight to protect Jesus. He was. But even with all of his willingness, you know what Peter's going to do. Just like the people in that crowd, in the triumphal entry, the praise of Sunday ends in the curse of Friday. And that's Peter's story too. Is it our story? With the same mouth, do we praise him on Sunday and curse him on Monday? Do we say, I want to follow you wherever you lead and then When he starts to lead us to a place that's uncomfortable, say, I ain't going there. Do 
Do we say, I'll follow your will? Not my will, God, but yours be done. And then when what he wants is counter to our purposes, whose will wins out? It was a day of triumph. It's good to have days of triumph. But one triumphal day, one day where we get it right doesn't mean we'll get it right tomorrow, does it? And that all sounds really pessimistic. But like I said, we can't read this story without looking to the week that's ahead. I wonder. I know he didn't see Peter there when he was on the cross. He'd run off to hide. And I don't know if he saw any of these people from the crowd there or not. I don't know if he saw them or not. If someone who had been in the crowd was there, though, they heard the words that Peter has to hear. And they heard the words that you have to hear today. Jesus' words at the cross were, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they've done. Forgive. Those were his words. They'd fallen so far but they hadn't fallen past the love of Jesus. They hadn't fallen past the grace he offers. They hadn't fallen past his forgiveness. <laughs> Today I want you to leave here with shouts of praise, waving your palm branch, saying, "Woohoo! it's the mountaintop, I'm gonna follow Jesus. We should leave like that. But we should also live, we should also live like that, don't you think? All week long. Well, it might be that you're here today and you've never given your heart to Jesus. You've never made a confession of faith. You've never been faithful in Christian baptism. Maybe this is a moment for you to take action, a moment for you to do something, to take a step of faith. And if that's something that you're ready to do, I encourage you to do it as we stand and we sing our hymn of invitation.